Welcome back to The Human Exception. It's Christmas time, so obviously time to do some fun holiday-themed topics. This week, we bring you Perkta, a Germanic figure of myth and legend who wanders the countryside during the 12 days of Christmas, checking that you have done all your spinning, that your children have been good, and that your house is clean. And trust me, you don't want to disappoint, Perkta. Expect foul language and discussions of medieval folklore, which naturally includes some violence. Let's get ready for another Human Exception. Nobody got time for that. But Jake does. I have to disassociate uh, to the terrors that are occurring on Instagram. I don't have time to be on Discord, mm-hmm. getting kicked out of Discord groups for talking about terrorism. Not terrorism. Terrible things that are happening. Wait, Jake got kicked out of a Discord? No, I would get kicked out of, kicked out of Discord. Oh. They all have that no politics clause in them. Uh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you have to be good. Yeah, the only Discord I'm in is my Dragon Age one, which is super chill. That's not true. Oh? You have other Discords. Well, that's the only, like, I don't count our oh. own Discords. Oh. <laughs> the ones that we own. Do you own, do you own the Oh, other yeah, I one? forgot about the Gen 1. Um, I'm a mod yeah. on it, so. That's not owning that it. That was not very active, let's be honest. It's, a, it's like, not. It's a wait, and, oh, wait around and find out what's going to happen Discord. So yeah, I just pop in every once in a while. I have a disability Discord I'm in, but I am not good at it. So you're not, you're not good at Discord? I'm not good at Discord. I'm not good at like remembering. Like I'm in, I have so many. Like I have to scroll to see all of mine. I've got like, I don't know, more than 10. But um, I'm not active in any of them. Sounds like you need to do a purge. Yeah. You could also well, like, just like group group them group up a bunch of them as well and just put them in like, a folder. So these are the ones I'm in for Jake. <laughs> ah, yeah, there you go. Don't hate yeah, me. I have a couple discords that I don't actually do anything in. Mm-hmm. I don't do anything in most of them. I like I'm in some of these because um I think they were for giveaways. I have my own Discord server for my art and I never use that. I have my own Discord server for my emojis. <laughs> I love it. All right, all right. I guess it's, uh, it's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. Meh. That's all I got. Meh? I'm, so, I'm, I'm not feeling Christmas this year. Have you set up your tree? No. How <laughs> would do that? Uh, have you met our cats? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hadfield surprisingly wasn't that bad as we thought he was going to be when we did the tree last year. Um, I, if anything, I'm more worried about them just eating pieces of it, um, or knocking it over with, or I guess we just wouldn't have to be able to put ornaments on it. Um, well, you know what? You just if you're worried about Hadfield, don't have like garland on it because yeah. he'll well, end up ortician so no garland no breakable ornaments nothing mm-hmm. small and plastic they can eat because i have like one of those stamping plate things for nail art uh and hadfield has decided they're his favorite thing to eat and he mm-hmm. actually ripped one out of the hard plastic case that it's in and like chewed it up holy so. shit what a little <laughs> shithead He's a he fucking loves my art my my nail art supplies. He'll get in there and he's just all up in it. I don't know what it is. It's the chemicals. He's just yearning for death. <laughs> God, put that on a t shirt. Just Hadfield's yearning, face and yearning, yearning for death because that's all he <laughs> does is try to eat shit that will definitely kill him. We had to chase him out of the room carefully because like he stole a. Uh, a soda pop lid, you know, like one of the plastic bottle cap lids. Yeah. 
it's just big enough for him to be able to like maybe possibly have it obstruct his airway if he pulls it back far enough. So I was trying to catch him, and then I'm like, fuck, don't chase the cat with the thing in his mouth that he'll choke on, but also, and he get that thing out of his fucking mouth. That's just life with Hatfield. Chasing yeah. <laughs> him when he's got shit in his mouth. Uh, I like cats because they are not like dogs, for the most part, where, like, dogs, like, you can't leave things out because dogs will destroy them. And for the most part with uh my, my two cats, uh, that is true, unless it is plastic or cardboard or paper like it's safe um but with Hadfield like he's eating things I would have never thought to have eaten right Mm -hmm. um so for the people at home that are listening to this you may have remembered (laughs) we had Hadfield for a while um sweet baby boy a friend of ours who is needs to a new place to live that allows cats and the last couple of years just hasn't had luck with that so Hadfield lived with us for a while but then we we, we moved Hadfield need to go somewhere else so oh, we took him but he doesn't exist at my house because he's not legally supposed to be here I am breaking my lease ag- terms to have him so um, your landlord doesn't listen to her uh, her podcast <laughs> if she does hi Jenny please don't kick us out uh, let also look away from, like <laughs> as you have looked away from my fish tank, look away from the third cat. <laughs> it's temporary. It's temporary. Temporarily forever. Um, uh, we signed. We did sign paperwork uh, to put an offer on on a house last night. So hopefully it's temporary. Temporary. Yay. Yeah. Well, good yeah. luck. Hopefully it works out. Yeah, we sh- we're hoping to hear today. So. Oh wow! Well, since five, thinking about that. That's why you're up so early. <laughs> yeah, just awake. Like my brain. There's been a lot of change this week, some of which I can't talk about uh, because it's not official yet. But uh, there's been a lot of change for me this week, and it has really fucked with my brain. So it's all. Anyway, sorry, distracting the podcast. Yeah, I know my... people love it when we talk about non podcasting subjects in our podcast. <laughs> I mean, no one's ever complained. It's very professional. Not an art podcast, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> People don't interact with us much. That's true. Every once in a while, we get those really sweet letters. I love those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a reminder, though, oh, yeah, people actually do listen. <laughs> yeah. Holy. Oh, it's so fun. I talk about it at work. Uh, I was I said something about being on a podcast, and then I was like, mm, do I want my coworkers to hear this? <laughs> I don't know. I just I forewarned them. I'm like, I swear like a sailor and have very strong opinions. So, mm-hmm. um, and they are my opinions yeah. and not that of my employer or my co-hosts. So I mean, sometimes, sometimes we share opinion. I mean, a lot of the time we share opinion. I think yeah. I don't think that there's many instances where we don't. Where we don't, yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, I guess who wants to go first? Listen to the clamor. Right. Oh my god, guys! It's like reindeer on the roof trying to be be okay. heard. Mine's roof. not very Christmassy, and um, I'm crabby this morning, so I don't know. <laughs> do we want to start crabby and like move to less crabby? Yeah, maybe. I wish we'd done actual crabs. There are crabs on Christmas Tree Island I could have talked about, and here I am not doing that. That was a choice. <laughs> All right, well then, okay, we'll kick off mine, because mine's Christmassy. And... Okay. My, way, mine's like... just cold. Mine's about cold. And then I get so angry. It's somewhat on brand. Yeah. We'll, do, we'll do a Christmas sandwich then. We can Okay. Let's do a Christmas sandwich. Just like a little Christmas Oreo. Tea. Yeah. Sandwich. Except Ooh, like cold feeling. <laughs> the other side of the sandwich is gonna be like filled with all sorts of weird Christmas flavors that it's, probably it's, don't go together. It's like um it's like an Oreo where you start off with like the, the good chocolate stuff and then you have like a weird off-putting icing in the middle and then instead of it being a regular cookie on the outside it's a savory cookie and you're not sure why yeah yeah just like that an off-putting awesome. cookie off-putting cookie <laughs> uh, all right so in austria and bavaria on december 5th and 6th 
These are special days. These are the days that Krampus visits children. <laughs> the rest of the month is primarily dedicated to Santa, but on the week leading up to January 5th, that's when Pactin rule, and rule in the name of Pacta. Let me show you. <laughs> You're just, just that close. I can give that a watch. Oh, God. That's so cool. <laughs> the thumbnail got me. And it's like so kind of discordant. Oh, I hate it. I love it. So oh, much. that is a nightmare. <laughs> I had it muted immediately. I immediately got upset. And here's another one, mostly just costumes. I love, um, I love that so many Germanic traditions have things that are geared towards children that are not um, kind or sweet. It makes me think of like the original Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah, yeah. You know, where it's just like, oh yeah, you have to be good, or this um, goat demon will come with chains and whip you and steal you away and eat you. Um, so prepare for that if Santa brings you nothing. <laughs> God, these things are terrifying. Right? This is this is a parade for children. <laughs> I love it. Now, for I mean, people at home, that is like, I am showing them footage of people dressed up as demonic entities with massive horns and teeth and all sorts of things. It looks like a Halloween parade, but it's it not. Looks it looks like if you took the orcs from Lord of the Rings and then gave them, like, giant long horns for no reason and then put them in... These coats look like they're made out of hay. <laughs> they're so um, good, though. And they look they're so... huge, too. They look very unwieldy and weird. Like, why are they so round? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Yeah, I found another mummery tradition to talk about for Christmas. Um, so mummering notes, also known as mumming, for those unfamiliar, is a very old tradition that has roots in much of the UK and Europe. Around Christmas, people will dress up in masks and costumes and go door to door spreading holiday cheer. Practices vary from region to region and based on the characters which are being mummed. But in general, mummers would show up at your house and put on a performance of some kind, either a skit, a dance, jokes, or music, and in return, the host will give, give them some food or drink. If you're a longtime listener or just a cool person, um, this may sound awfully similar to the Mary Lude, uh, which yes. I covered way back in our first Christmas episode. <laughs> And you would be correct. Now, the Mary Lute is a practice that originated in Wales, but the practice we're talking about today mostly takes place in Central Eastern Europe. So, you've probably heard about Krampus, obviously. Yeah. Um, quite the uh, hot topic in the West the last, like, eight years or something. Um, so, yeah, the horned, demonic-looking figure that's in Santa's shadow. What you might not know is that Krampus is part of a large mummering tradition, where you find a Krampus, you will almost always find a Perkton. So, while Krampus and Perkton are distinct entities with their own traditions and mythos, they have spent centuries circling each other and intersecting, so much so today that they could look quite similar on the surface. I have some pictures of some old-school ones. <laughs> I'm afraid. They're off to find the wizard. You know... This just reminds me of um, how much I don't enjoy mascots. <laughs> I've never liked, like, you know, as like a kid, everyone shows like going to Disney and meeting all the characters. To me, that's never been, I don't want it. I don't want any of this. I would put an axe in their forehead. I would just put a big <laughs> do not come into my hut on my door. I don't like it. No. Well, you're lucky they don't really come to people's houses anymore. So if That's you live in this area, you'd be fine. So Lon Krampus and Perkin are brothers and sisters in arms. And like the Mary Lou, both groups make up are made up of hundreds of performers and troops that create a tight network of camaraderie and cross-promotion. During their holidays, Krampuses and Perkins run the street in elaborate masks and costumes, entertaining and spreading holiday cheer in their own unique way. But it wasn't always like this. In fact... This level of memory has only come back in vogue in the last century. Um, Franz Grisfer um, commented in 1992 that said, 
Right now, we are experiencing the Prussianization of Austria. There is hardly a place in the countryside of Salzburg without a new Prechtor or Krampus group. So in the past 40-odd years, we've seen an explosion of these practices, as can be seen here in this map. While Krampus is considerably more well-known in the West, in almost every place that Krampus exists and celebrated as is the Perikton. And the reason for that is likely based on location. Krampus has been celebrated in both rural and urban areas, where Perikton historically has mostly been found in the more rural areas. The places most fervently celebrate the Perikton are like Salzburg, Tyrol, Carinthia, and Bavaria. These places are heavily forested in alpine and subalpine areas, many of which were quite geographically isolated before the coming of railroads, and some are still only accessible with difficulty in the winter months. These are hardy, hard-working people, dependent on forestry and farming in the valleys to keep themselves fed alongside a rich hunting culture. Their values, and thus folklore, have been heavily shaped from centuries of living in such a harsh environment, where everyone needed to chip in for a community to survive. What may be surprising to you, though, is that most of the modern mummers in these groups are Catholic, despite common claims that these traditions have deeply rooted pagan origins. Catholics love a good pagan tradition, though. <laughs> like, there's something about it that we just are like, yes. We, I'm not Catholic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is the biggest thing debate, is where did these actually come from? So, like, many locals in Sisley regions are ancient and that they are pagan and have only recently been recovered from Catholic oppression. But scholars push back on this idea, insisting that these are practices that rose into prominence in a culture that had already been thoroughly Christianized. I mean, like, if you look at a Krampus or a Perkinson performer or listen to the stories associated, they sound very pagan. Yeah. The fact of the matter, though, is there's just there's a point of history where we simply can't find any earlier mentions of these figures. Like, they look pagan as fuck. They look pagan as fuck. And also, like, the church did a really good job of um, destroying that shit. And if it was a mostly oral tradition, what would you find, right? Yeah. Like, there's no tangible... Like maybe, maybe you would have like, like masks or something, yeah. Yeah, and and those would have been very clearly like those would be the first things you would destroy as the church, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. And the church has a very like long storied, uh, victorious history of stamping that shit out. They really do. They really yep. do. Good job. Yeah, we like our fun little devil things. Let us be. <laughs> So, the Perikton mass performers are most prominent in Austria, Bavaria, and, it and Italian South Tyrol, but go back a couple centuries and you find Perikton and similar figures spread throughout what is now known as Slovakia, Slovenia, Alsace, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. Perikton's memory is still predominantly a rural practice, but interest is growing in the bigger cities like Salzburg, Innsbruck, and Munich. Um, the earliest records of Perkton Mummer practice occurs in the 17th and 18th century. Well, today, most of these performances occur in public during parades or at taverns. Historically, much like their skeletal horse cousin, the Mary Lid, the Perkton Mummers made house calls with their antics. But this wasn't always appreciated. At the least, they were considered a nuisance, and at worst, the practices were straight up outlawed. Which is a stark contracts to today where we they've become much beloved festivities where people travel from all over the world to experience the Krampus or Perikton run. But both Krampuses and Perikton wear costumes made of goat skins or sheep pelts, normless bells strapped to these belts, and grotesque wooden devil masks elaborately carved and featuring horns, protruding tongues and fangs. They carry switches, either of horsetails, cowtails, or bundles of twigs, with which they whip spectators, singling out young women and boys for special attention. <laughs> Weird. Yep. <laughs> Don't like that. Mm. Um, performances can consist of dancing or leaping, or they can be the, quote, hell show type, where it is primarily the monstrous figures attempting to scare people like you'd encountered a haunted house or during a Halloween parade. Hell shows tend to be stationary, and people come and gather around where the performance is taking place. This allows the troops to include music, special effects like pyrotechnics, or to be able to perform complex skits. This allow also allows for the display of more detailed or less mobile costumes. Hell shows tend to be more about putting on a show for the enjoyment of the audience, where classic memorying was a mobile interactive event that usually happened with smaller groups. 
So the reason that there is so much similarity between the Krampus and Perkton performance is that they were going through revival. Only fragments could be salvaged of the old practices, causing the two to kind of blend together. And as we've learned more, many mummers seek to make a greater distinction between the two. While often presented as authentic cultural experiences from an unbroken line of tradition, Krampus and Perkton are truly just what we have managed to piece together. For some, this makes this practice look like a sham, an inauthentic effort to reclaim something that never was, or at worst, fraudulent in pursuit of profit. <laughs> there is a massive tourist industry around these festivities, and you can understand where that, that concern comes from. Well, but why is that any different than, like, just starting a new thing? Like, why would that be any worse? Yeah, I don't know, like, it, it, it's a weird, like... I guess people, people feel like they're almost like appropriating their own culture to for the purpose of can, sale. Like, <laughs> can you appropriate your own culture? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I don't think you can. I you think can definitely like, exploit it for. You like, can exploit your culture, sure. Yeah. I don't feel like this is yeah. an exploitation, though. Like, I feel like exploiting your culture would be like, oh, let's uh, let's just make a bunch of Krampus T-shirts that we sell. And Krampus figurines, but let's not make them in any sort of traditional way. Let's let's uh, outsource that to a Chinese factory. Have these plastic things imported. Uh, yeah. That would be one thing, but like this isn't that. So mm -hmm. no, it yeah, definitely sounds like the people make their own costumes and everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. So there is a kind of term for this kind of revival. It's called folklorism. Regina Bendix, a uh, folklore professor from Germany, says that this means that this is folklore out of context, folklore which has been altered or even invented for specific purposes. Parkden and Krampus events track thousands of people every year, people of all ages and creeds, locals and tourists alike. But since much of the origins and practices have been lost to time, performers are forced to gather the fragments and fill in the rest, often with modern imagery and symbolism. Masks have evolved to align more with pop culture representations of demons and monsters. Conventional devil, conventional devil imagery reimagined through the lens of contemporary heavy metal culture, science fiction and fantasy and horror films and video games. This has raised much debate and criticism around the practice. Some practitioners insist on sticking as closely to tradition as possible, while others seek to breathe new life and interpretations into the practice, and not everybody is happy about that. So you can imagine, like, a, an old cranky man being like, oh, my day. <laughs> I could just see, like, like, you know how every village would have, like, a get-off-my-lawn guy. Mm. He's, <laughs> he is, he's loving this. He is running around and beating every child he could possibly find. Oh That'll teach you to get on my lawn. Fucking stay off it for the rest of the year. <laughs> you little shit, you stamped on my petunias! <laughs> so the first unambiguous references to Parkton members date to the second half of the 16th century recorded in civil and church documents and set against the backdrop of the war of religion, which started from the Protestant Reformation of 1517. We find mentions of Perkton mumming coinciding with the years following the Peace of Augsburg, which was 1555, which was meant to resolve the warring of Catholic and Lutheran forces in Germany and divide the spoils between them, but that peace was only temporary. And then we had the Thirty Years' War, which ran from 1618 to 1648, initiated a roughly then 200-year period in which Perkton were under siege from civil and church authorities. Mummers were felt to represent the paranoid climate caused by endless war, which generated the atrocities of disease, famine, and torture by marauding soldiers, as well as massive dislocation and depopulation. The chaos of the Thirty Years' War also gave rise to witch hunts, which peaked around 1580 and 1630 with a series of major trials in Bavaria claiming thousands of lives. Yeah, can't, can't have a... Uh, can't do Europe without witch trials. Nope. I do love to shit on the Catholic Church for, like, stripping so many people of anything fun, but really the Protestants took that and made it, like, an art form. Because <laughs> I feel like they make you do it you're, to yourself. Oh, yeah. And they're good at it. At least Catholics, you can, like, hide shit and kind of have fun in other ways. But, like, Protestants, a little more insidious. Not that all Protestants are terrible. No. I'm not saying uh, that. But, like, Protestant, Protestants. That hashtag not all Protestants. But enough of them. Just, like, the Puritans were not a fun lot, right? Like, yeah. never have been. 
Anyway, <laughs> just a thought. Sorry. No, that's fine. So, in 1662, for instance, a Corinthian court recorded the witchcraft trial of a woman named Regina Pommon, who was accused of weatherworking and participating in the witch's Sabbath and subsequently then put to death. According to the trial records, the chief devil was named the Old Perta. At one point during the Sabbath, the skies darkened and, and she appeared amid thunder and lightning, at which the assembled people scattered in terror and fell upon the ground. So obviously she was a witch, because weather happened. <laughs> Love yeah. weather. Love it. Stupid, stupid weather causing witches. Causing witches. So we have court records showing a rash of decrees forbidding Parkton from remembering on religious and civil grounds issued in Bavaria, Salzburg, and Tyrol from the late 16th through the early 17th century. The reason for the ban, well, there was a current concern that Parkton mumming could lead to violence and sorcery. These mummers were punished with imprisonment, public humiliation, military conscription, and hard labor. Yeah, <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> okay. These bands would then brand the house visits as Heishengal. My German is terrible, by the way. Heishengahan. Sure. That's a. Here, I'll put that in the, the chat and you guys can yeah. tell me how to pronounce the damn word. I'll do my best. <laughs> I only know a little German. I am German. Oh, you know what else we could do? We can go so I know, I googled it. I tried. Let's see what... These are very specific terms that are very specific to folklore, and there's not, like, the standard pronunciation page. Oh. I would probably I also go with Heishengagen. Yeah, Heishengagen. Um, but anyways, that basically means going begging. So even when hosts protested that they'd given away gladly to these people, it would only then incriminate the hosts, who could then also suffer punishment. So many people in Austria and Germany, especially those in the countryside, had to share their meager resources with the many starving and dispossessed people who came begging. Some of these beggars were Perkton. They, you know, obvious Christian thing to do, punish the suffering and those that assisted them. It's exactly what Jesus wanted, right? <laughs> yeah. Jesus said, give the landlords more money and feel bad for them. Very clearly. <laughs> Jesus also said, uh, beat the little children. Yes. And oh, uh, eat all their food. <laughs> like, that's what Jesus was all about, right? Yeah, Jesus said, fuck them, kids. Fuck them. <laughs> well, okay. Oh, God, I Come on now. <laughs> not like, oh. not like, not like sexually, <laughs> but you know, like, fuck this, fuck them, kids. Some people are obviously taking it. They, they're doing it, they're doing it very wrong. Yes. <laughs> Good God. I'm sorry, people. I'm not. Um, so anyways, these developments added another dimension to the dramatized tension between the poles of reward and punishment, inside or outside, or giving and receiving embodied in Perkton folklore. Numerous decrees banning the Perkton Loft, which is the Perkton Run, um, and court records of their trial, imprisonment, and other punishments were documented in Bavaria, Tyrol and Salzburg from the late 16th through the early 19th century. Many rural communities were hit by a battery of repeated bans, seven between 1721 and 1777 in Salzburg, and four between 1743 and 1804 in East Tyrol alone. It's like multiple bans. <laughs> so, nevertheless, the Parkton Loft continued unabated, carried on largely by unmarried young men working on farms, farmers' sons, farmhands, and tradesmen, or rather their apprentices. But they also included boys, men in their late middle age, and women, elderly widows or mothers with sons in tow. A report from Kitzbühel in 1735 reveals that the devil masks and bells associated with Perkton today are represented in this period as well, mentioning a time when there was 30 to 50 young men dressed as revolting apparitions with devil masks hung with big bells. <laughs> hung with big bells. Yeah. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> So although the bans came in large part from the classical authorities who suspected that Perkton were invoking demonic powers with their dancing, they were levied, all, levied overall on more social than, so, than religious grounds, as it was common for Perkton to carry props that could potentially be used as weapons, like pole vaulting sticks or oven forks, scissors and brooms. Many of these cases stood on the grounds that there was a potential for violence. Nonetheless, other records from the period show that the mock violence did sometimes descend into the real thing. 
1721 in Durenberg, the Parkton were linked to deadly brawling. And in Hushleg in 1777, real weapons were carried along the springing pools. When rival um, groups from adjacent troops met on the road, they sometimes came to blows in a deadly display of regional pride, sometimes resulting in burial on the spot. Those who died with a devil mask on were forbidden from being buried in consecrated ground and were therefore conscripted to these roadside burial sites. As the burial in unconsecrated ground shows, to don the mask was to venture outside the safe bounds of the Christian and human world into a liminal state of state rife with danger. Due to, quote, the awareness that through the mass procession they had the rifted into the extra Christian. Perkton placed something blessed in their shoes. This protection was provided by receiving communion beforehand. While many legends describe Perkton dying of wounds sustained at human hands, each other's, um, and others, the death brought about by the Perkton mumming is magical in nature, caused by the unwitting invocation of the wild Perkton herself, who might be summoned by the wearing of the mask, illustrating just how careless and unskilled traffic with the spirit world may result in death for those foolish enough to attempt it. Superstition wasn't just for the non-Perkton, though. One Perkton legend is known as the One Too Many, described as a scenario where a group of Perkton realize that there is an extra man among them. Quote, A young man who did not belong to them, but was disguised in the same manner mingled among them. The Perkton recognized that their number was greater with terror, for in superstitious fear, the foreign newcomer was taken for the devil incarnate. Which would be kind of terrifying. If you're with your group of friends, you're all dressed up and you turn around and there's another person there. You don't know who they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a, that'd be a lot. Hello, friend. Who are you? Wouldn't <laughs> you like to know? <laughs> so, about a century ago, the practice of going door to door had begun to flourish again, with the bands been removed or forgotten. With this has come a slow shift to performances at public events, and any home visits usually occur only on the front step instead of inside the home as they once would have. Today, the practices are celebrated instead of criminalized, even if there are some that aren't so happy about it. But we're not actually here to talk about Perkton. Well, not directly, because before there was Perkton, there was Perkta. Described as the ultimate symbol of duality, Perkta is a folklore character from the Alps. She can be both kind and generous, or vengeful and terrifying. And here is a picture of a mask that shows both sides. I feel like I've seen this before. And, Maybe and this, this is a beautiful like piece a... of art by Scott Fisher. Oh, Ooh. that's so cool. Now, I just want to know here that the term character has many meanings. Usually it's used to describe the character performers, but just to make it all the more confusing, it can also just be used to describe any masked performer. But it can also be used to refer to Pertha herself. So for the sake of all our sanities, I will use the term Pertha to describe the performers and Pertha for the mythic entity lady herself. So finding information on Pertha that actually included academic citations and sources was a bit of a task. Most websites seem to regurgitate the same information with very few containing actual sources. And often the ones that did were papers or academic books on the topic that were neither available online nor in English. Uh, I was beginning to think I wasn't gonna be able to have much luck parsing this mystery, but then I came across a 600 page thesis, Perkton and Krampus Living Mass Traditions in Austria and Bavaria by Molly Carter, a PhD in folklore and cultural traditions from 2016. This proved to be the most valuable resource to me. Not only has she done an incredible job at citing her sources and compiling information, she also includes included interviews that she conducted with modern practitioners and included information she found in the myriad of German texts that I had seen mentioned but had no access to myself. So, big shout out to Molly Carter, who prevented me from losing my mind chasing my tail with this one. <laughs> The earliest records of Perkta show that she was a common figure in cautionary tales for children. In stories, she would test children, looking for proof of, proof of their obedience, diligence, and piety. Leaving her food offerings was one way to help swing her favor in your way, as if you managed to appease this entity, you would be rewarded, often with a silver coin left in your shoe. But if you didn't, you would be punished. Stories vary, but one consistent aspect of Perkta was her double aspect, which is dual aspect. I'm sure you couldn't have figured that one out. I said, nope, don't understand. <laughs> no, yeah. One face is bright, beautiful, and clement, while the other is dark, deadly, and terrifying. Joan Berkton describes the beautiful, benevolent side, and, and Shaq Perkton describes the ugly, vengeful side. This duality is reflected in all things that they represent, day and night, sun and moon, summer and winter, life and death, 
And it's the Shrek Pecton who aspect that is most commonly represented in Pecton performers today. What causes them so easily to be confused and muddled with the Krampus performers? The legend is that during the Twelve Nights of Christmas, Perakta and her followers roam the land, visiting house after house, and whether it's the old hag that knocks on your door or the beautiful woman is completely dependent on you and what you've done in the last year, as long as you've appeased her by her day, which is Perchteg, or Epiphany, which is January 5th, you would be safe for another year. There's countless tales describe the terror that she'd rain down on those that didn't adhere to church decree or carry their weight in their community. But the punishment most commonly associated with her is known as gastrotomy, or the slitting open of victims' bellies and stuffing the cavity with refuse. But she didn't <laughs> see that one coming. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I so. Mean, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have any, anything beyond that. <laughs> Just that, that seems on point for weird right, so Yeah. So what can we do to keep her happy? What are her domains? Um, well, keep your house clean. Observe Christian fasts and feasts. Spin all your flax or wool by her day, parched egg, which is January 5th. Leave out offerings of food. Do not be greedy or gluttonous. Character of legend inspects the household for cleanliness and the spinning, the work of girls, for indication of productivity and skill. Interrogating children to learn whether they properly fasted and listened to their parents. These duties are parental in nature, but her threatened punishments far exceed the worst a parent would ever do. And perhaps this is the lesson that there are worse things than spanking, setting her in the realm of the supernatural, where the rules of everyday life no longer apply. A child cannot barter for his life with an ogress the way that he can try to evade punishment from his mother. The former is an exaggerated and distorted mirror of the latter, wherein lies the point. And so if you don't do these things, you put yourself at risk for her wrath, whether woman, child, or man. So men are not judged nearly as harshly in this case, since they don't do a lot of this work. Though it's not entirely impossible to escape Perta's wrath, it would seem that there's one way of getting around this. While eating too much of the wrong foods spelled trouble at Epiphany, gorging oneself on the permitted foods was allowed and even prudent. Overstuffed bellies might attract Perta's ire, but it was precisely the overstuffing of one's belly that assured protection from her sickle and chain. One account published in 1782 reports that, quote, In the hills around Tronstein, one says to the children on the eve of Epiphany, when they are bad, the, the perk that comes and cuts open their bellies. On this day, greasy cakes are baked, and, and among the farmhams, it, it is said that one has to smear one's belly with them. Then Frau Perkta's knife will slide right off. Okay. Rolling grease and she mm. can't take you open. I thought it was interesting that you have to have all of your spinning done. Yeah. I wonder if that, like, I was trying to, like, look and see if, like, maybe the flax would go bad or something, but it shouldn't because it's, like, dried and it has, like, a huge long process. I wonder if that just has to do with making sure you have enough time to get your weaving done, Ben? Yeah, you're, you're close. We'll get to it. <laughs> oh, okay. No worries. Um... So, yeah, let's talk about origins. Today, telling the difference between a Krampus and a Perkton is not easy, but they do come from very different roots. It's commonly thought that Perkta comes from pagan roots, while Krampus comes from Christian roots. Did you know that Krampus had Christian roots? Because I didn't. I mean, he's a very stereotypical depiction of the devil, if you think about it. Like, the cloven mm -hmm. hoof, the goat horns, the dark mm -hmm. fur. It's very Satan-y. It's true. Yeah, to understand why, we have to talk about Santa. The Santa Claus we know today is thought to have been inspired by St. Nicholas, the 4th century Bishop of Mera, whose feast day was December 6th. In Christian belief, powerful saints are able to bind devils to their services, and that's where Krampus comes in. Today, Santa Sorry, is a jolly fucking day. what? Yeah, right? Um, Christ, uh, like, right. saints are warlocks is what they are. <laughs> saints are warlocks. I also, they can intercede with God, for, with God for you, so... Like, what the fuck? I never under like, I always thought saints were weird, but I didn't know that they could bind devils. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. Today, Santa's a jolly guy that gives good children presents and at worst gives bad children coal. But once upon a time, the punishments for the bad children were much more severe, and that was the Krampus's realm of expertise. The idea of bad and good is tied into the Christian beliefs and practice, like going to church and praying before meals and bed, etc. 
to really, it was about being a good Christian, not necessarily about being morally good. You could save a thousand lives, but if you didn't pray to God, it would be Krampus that would come knocking. There's a lot more of us to do with Santa and Krampus origins, but that's not why we're here. Eric, on the other hand, is thought to be more concerned about the welfare of the Earth on a greater, more impersonal scale. Perikta is commonly regarded as an, a personification of the forces of nature. Like a wild animal, she can't be reasoned with and doesn't follow our socially constructed moral guidelines. Perikta's own duality represents the fight between two forces, warmth, fertility, good fortune, versus cold and sickness. The darker side is thought to have agents known as winter demons that help bring all such unfortunate things. But if you appease her, she will protect you from these demons. Where Santa and Krampus seek to instill Christian morals, Perikta represents the balance of all things on a grander scale. Where Santa and Krampus divide the labor, Perkta is the judge, jury, and executioner. The reasoning behind this is suspected to be related to the isolation of these communities and the harsh environments they lived in. Surviving was a community effort. If you, if you didn't spin all your wool, you wouldn't be able to keep your family clothed and couldn't help the community. And adhering to Christian beliefs was thought to protect the community. It only took one sinner or witch to call demons upon a community which could snuff it out in an instance. These beliefs likely reflect the fact that com these communities could just disappear over a season if not enough food or goods were harvested in the warm season, leaving nearby communities to speculate and spread rumors of their demise. So, yeah, you were, you were, you were pretty close about it, yeah? <laughs> you needed to get that stuff done so you could do the, the weaving and everything and have materials for the year. That makes sense. It takes yeah. a lot of time. Like, I was looking at flax, and I thought flax, I didn't think you had to do that much for it, apparently. Like, you have to, like, harvest it, thresh it, dry it, and then soak it, smack it, and comb it before you can even look at spinning it. And spinning it takes for fucking ever. Like, yeah, yeah this shit's a lot of work. <laughs> So all of this, is this is one of the many aspects of Perikta. So now I'm going to take you through some of the different versions of the Perikta that we've seen. Um, so are you guys familiar with the Wild Hunt? Vaguely. And not the Witcher expansion? <laughs> yeah, that literally just through the Witcher. Um, I think I remember something about it vaguely from a C.S. Lewis, I think, mentioned it. Maybe. Uh, well... For everyone, this is a motif that occurs in many European cultures and folklore. It usually involves a chase led by a mythological figure with an army of ghosts or supernatural entities at their side. General belief around the hunt is that if you saw it, it was a bad omen, that something bad was coming like war or plague or maybe even your own death. Or just witnessing it could lead to your abduction to the realm of the fairies or the underworld. Some stories it was believed that your spirit could be pulled away in your sleep to join the hunt. One aspect of Perkta was her attachment to the wild hunt, often depicted as the leader. Her army of hunters varies, though. Either they be witches or animals, sometimes headless animals, <laughs> skeletons, three-footed hounds, and the devil. But probably the most common that we see in her army is an army of Kinder Sjelashar, which is the souls of children that died before baptism. Okay. Encountering Perkta's wild hunt could lead to all manner of events i just i you're like i heard kinder and i was like ah fuck yeah was, that's, that's <laughs> immediately exactly like, I, my shit. Mind, yeah like a fucking kids god damn it <laughs> so yeah um with characters wild uh hunch uh in some cases you you would be destroyed if you were deemed a wicked person torn into dust and ashes this refrain is echoed from Styrian legends in which it is said that Quote that Perkta rips apart or grinds to ash wicked people whom she encounters on Three Kings Night. And another quote here. Those lax in their Christian devotions, not heeding the bells, calling the villagers to prayer, for instance, risk being swept away by the deadly forces outside the safe confines of the Christian human world. That world was circumscribed by house walls, baptism, the consecrated ground of a churchyard, and daylight. In some, it really didn't matter whether or not you were a sinner. And one such legend occurs around the uses the door kind of as a protective boundary. So, quote, people who were outdoors late on the eve of the Perkton day heard a cowbell in the distance. They ran into the nearest house and had hardly closed the door when they heard rapping and scratching at the house doors. It's the Perkton, they cried in terror. Luckily, one man had a knife on which the, the sacred names had been inscribed. He struck it into the door at which the Perkton disappeared. But on the next morning, the doors were found to have scratched all the way up from the top to the bottom. 
They'll just have a knife with some holy names on it, and that will magically seal your doors. Good. Excellent. Good to know. Okay. Yeah. Or, hear me out, go have a wild fucking party. <laughs> Why you gotta be and so some... square? Yeah, don't be such a square guy. <laughs> um, in some parts of folk tales, church bells seem to signify the div- division between the human and non-human, the living and the dead, heaven-bound Christians and those who die without receiving sacraments or baptism or the last rites. Quote, Frau Perkta is a tall, deeply veiled woman with long, undone hair waving down. She is mostly to be seen on the peak with some small dogs after the bell calling people to prayer, climbing down the mountain through a ditch overgrown with scrub. <laughs> There's an image. <laughs> I like that she has small dogs, though. Yes. All baby puppies. Oh, it's probably, but what we probably see most associated with Perikta's Wild Hunt is the, yeah, the Kinder Silashar. That is, and it's also the most interesting. In some treatments, Perikta appears as a wild woman of the mountains, flanked by baying hounds who are said to be the souls of unbaptized children and referred to as innocent children, that is, holy innocents, whose feast day is December 28th, is one of the Ranak, uh, Ranak, um, while they are usually encountered outdoors, Perkta and her Kintarjirna are drawn to human habitation through Raunacht, when where they partake in, partake in the food left out for them after the household has gone to bed. Styria, leaving out um, Perkta milk, is used in divination. Quote, Every year, a farmer's wife left them a bowl with sweet milk, dished up and some spoon standing overnight. Perkta and her children always savored a few drops and moved on, Wherefore, blessing settled upon the house. Despite the prohibition, a meddlesome servant hid himself in the oven and observed them. She struck him blind by saying to the child, Put the lights out. At the advice of the priest, the servant hid himself in the oven one year later at the same time, and Prakta made him see again. Which is pretty benevolent, considering in some cases she just cuts you open. <laughs> I'm just going to make you blind yeah. for a year. <laughs> yeah, if you're, hi- also, if you're hiding in the oven... Yeah. I like if I were her, I would have just turned it on. Like, <laughs> you get what you get. That's so much work. <laughs> Back in the day, like, think about it. Also, that oven is probably still hot because, like, how many people just let the oven get cold? Right. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you just keep it warm? Wouldn't you just keep it going? That's what I would think. That's what you would think. Yeah, because it's a lot to start a fire, like you said, to get it up to temp. We didn't start the fire. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it was always burning. Also, um, <laughs> also the the parallels between leaving Santa milk, right, and cookies. Mm-hmm. Santa's a fake creature. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. a thousand percent. So one's reaction to the suffering of her children would determine whether Perkta would respond with wrath or generosity. Legends, legends centering the theme of compassion reveal Perkta's benevolent side. In some variants, her child souls are weighed down with the jugs filled with the tears of, that their mothers have shed for them. I would never right. cry for my kid. I'm not making them carry shit. Yeah. Right? If you're a child die, you wouldn't cry for them? No, because I don't want them to have to carry around jugs of my tears for all eternity. <laughs> what a terrible thing. That's brutal. Yeah. That's why do you, like, you're punishing <laughs> innocent kids for something that, like, your parents didn't do? Get their what shit together I, about. What yeah. the fuck? <laughs> oh, but just, just as their mother's grief could then trap them in their purgatorial state... So could giving a name to free them. The name being tantamount to baptism, since they had died unbaptized, they were thus unnamed. A tale from Calvangsteria describes a farmer out looking for a godfather for his newborn child on Pirach's night. He runs across Perakta with her child souls and is taken aback by the pitiful, wretched appearance of the last child in the train. He cries out compassionately, Oh, you poor little ragamuffin, which releases Aww. the child thus named and claimed as a Christian soul, he is free to go to heaven. <laughs> Which, Ragamuffin is a name, I suppose. That's a name. <laughs> Rather than punishing the man for costing her a child, Perkta rewards him lavishly for his kindness, blessing him and his newborn child with good fortune. Good. But, I sorry? like her. I like yeah. her. She's good. 
Um, legends revolving around the wood shavings reward can be found throughout Saxony and Thuringia also illustrate the rewards in charity. One, Pecta's wagon, wagon breaks down and she's out roaming the night with her children and a passing man stops to help repair the wheel. Pecta rewards him with the remaining wood shavings, cold comfort, until they turn to gold the next morning. Cruelty and greed, however, are met with a punishment. Sorry? I was like, good thing he didn't burn them for a fire. Yeah. <laughs> what I would have done, I'm like, dope, thanks for the kindling. <laughs> Cruelty and greed, however, are met with fit, fit punishment. In a variant from the German Volkland, a greedy man offers to repair Perkta's plow with, a, with this in mind, but is punished for his selfless motivations. A year later, when Perkta delivers a hatchet blow to his neck, rendering it crooked for the rest of his life. Which means it must have been a dull hatchet. Ouch. Just the thought so, of it. No thanks. So fucking metal. <laughs> In one version, a maidservant sees one of the children struggling along, dragging a heavy plow behind them, and laughs at the sight, in which Perita strikes her blind until the following Three Kings night, when she blows into her eyes to make her see again. But TLDR, if you ever encounter Perita with her children, don't be a dick. Like, that's just the basics yeah. of it. Like, just don't be a dick in general. Yeah. Also a good strategy. You never fucking know, bro. The earliest mentions of Perkta aren't necessarily by that name. Two such identities being called the Spinster, uh, Spinsterbundfrau, and which means the spinning Lady of the Spinning Chamber, and Frau Faust, which is Lady Fast, Faust being the German word for Lent. And then there we have what we have then is also her persona as a, a Kinderschreck, which is a child frightener, <laughs> for enforcing the church traditions of fasting on the holy days of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, known in folk parlance as Ranacht, which is the Wild Nights. This connected three important motives of Perkta um, spinning, fasting, and of course, the belly slicing. Sometimes all three motifs will show up in the same story. Many of the stories relate to the socialization of children, particularly girls, in both domestic and religious spheres, a theme which extends to another of Perkta's Kinderschreck personas, which is known as the Butzenbracht. In some, she appears as an allegorical figure personifying the vices, and vanity, uh, vices of vanity and luxury, while other sources she is seen as a figure set out on tempting women to join her girl gang, consisting of Diana, Diana and Herodi, Herodi, Herodias? Herodias? That's yeah, probably Herodotus. For a wild night rides, women who fell for such temptations were to be condemned. Which I mean, I get fucked. I would go. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be gone. I sometimes mentioned with iron features when she appears in her Kinder Trek role. Medieval sources refer to Perfa's long nose, iron nose, or both. And in some cases, it is her gloves that are iron. In addition to St. Amarin's reference to Perta's iron nose in a poem from Tyrol in 1393, a father threatens his child with the horrid Perta with the long nose, who will come after him if he fails to clean his plate. <laughs> he speculates that the iron features of Perta alluded to in the 19th century threats made to, to misbehaving children, as well as those in medieval sources, may have been related to the, mental, the metal implements, like the knife or iron chain or plowshare she used to perform her gut slicing. Other treatments appear in St. Emeron's 15th century Panatera, where he refers to Parakthara as one of the three sisters receiving food offerings and riding through the night in the company of Diana and werewolves. Which okay. is just getting cooler, right? <laughs> um, it was a book from 1460. Benedict Wren also numbers Perkta among the airborne, ho airborne ho hosts of demonic beings abroad on January 5th and mentions that people leave tables set with food and drink for her. It is in Vindler that the earliest known pictorial representation of Perkta can be found, and an, an illustration of 1486 edition depicts her as a woman with a long, pointy blue no nose. Scholars speculate the blue color signifies iron. I have a picture of that. Old school wood carving. It's almost like a plague doctor mask. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> While the iron motif uh, tends to be concentrated in the medieval sources, it surfaces occasionally centuries later in oral traditions, as in Vergen, Tyrol, and Litzdorf in Moltal, 
where she was said to leave an iron glove behind in the houses that she visited. It's like, is she wearing, like, gauntlets? Like, <laughs> she must be. She's ready for battle. <clears throat> She's ready for a duel. <laughs> She's doing strength training. <laughs> she wants to be a muscle mommy. Well, that might relate to the next thing here, then. Uh, one of the most important early sources for the study of Perakta folklore is a pair of woodcuts entitled Butzenberg and the Kinderfresser, published in Augsburg, Germany in the late 16th or early 17th century. The depiction of the belly-slitting Butzenberg and the company verses contain elements common to Perakta folklore, including threats of belly-slitting as punishment for their naughty behavior. So here is the picture. There's the one on the right. So the Butzenberg's male counterpart is the Kinderfresser, which is Child Gobbler, mirrors her threats in the companion woodcut. Shared elements between these two figures, such as the cannibalism implied by the large baskets on their backs for carrying of children, underscored by Butzenberg's oven fork and Kinderfresser's sharp teeth. So she may be strength tra tra trained to carry children. Yeah. That's uh, totally fair, yeah. My um my family is has some Germanic heritage and I definitely grew up uh with my mom threatening to sell us um to we won't say the word because it's definitely racist. I didn't know it was racist at the time. Um but yeah, like we used to get threatened to be sold off all the time as kids. And with the implication that like you would be eaten or like something worse would be going on than you know, whatever chore they were trying to make us do. Oh, yeah. fun. Good. My, my grandmother has told me similar stories, um, more just not necessarily as a threat, but as just the, like telling about her, her youth. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I definitely was like, I'll just sell you. I was like, okay. What do they have? <laughs> <laughs> What's their story? I'd love to know. <laughs> So the Bits and Barracks is a humpback, tattered old woman with adv advancing with snot, boots dripping from her nose, and a deadly-looking oven fork in one hand, and a distaff wound with flax in the other. Strapped to her back is a large basket filled with squalling children. Disobedient and lazy girls could expect to receive the terrible attentions of the Bits and Barracks, related with seemingly related with unseemly relish in the verses that follows. So this is a kind of a verse from a poem about it, and it says, "Mom, mom." Where are you, children? Where? Why do you hide yourselves? Why flee from me so? She proceeds to then issue a number of imaginative, imaginative threats. So, do you too want to be bad, lazy, and do nothing? Be grumpy and out of sorts like a silly goose? Learn nothing in school, neither sew or spin? Neither go to bed nor get up, or so shall you not escape? My old broomstick, the, the whip and the switch, with which I will beat you until you are red with blood. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would not have done well as a child in this time. No. Thanks so if that thanks. Were, as if that weren't enough, she threatens to take away their toys, set their pigtails on fire, and cut off their noses. <laughs> yeah, I would have. I would have been fucked. Most significantly, though, Britzenberg promises to inflict the act of which Perikta is most notice, notorious for, which is slicing open your stomach and putting stuff in it. So, quote, she says, So will I spool your intestines up out of your belly, with, then with rasping and panting, let it be filled. So in the final verse, girls are advised to be docile and obedient, lest they come into the basket of the boots and direct. <laughs> I would have been chucked in that basket. <laughs> it like, the witch wouldn't have even had to do anything. My mom was, like, three-point shot. <laughs> Between the 1800s and early 1900s was a time of revivalism as scholars began to collect and compile folklore. Up until this point, much folklore was strictly oral, but with increases in literacy and writing, scholars saw an opportunity not just to capture topics of the era, but to record topics that may have never been recorded before and analyze them. This is considered a time of first-wave folklore and revivalism in Germany in particular. In 1835, Jacob Grimm published his book, The Douche Mythology, and this is one of our the more Deutsch. prominent sources. Sorry? The Deutsch Mythology or the Douche yeah, Mythology? Deutsch, that, that, that's the word. 
Okay. <laughs> it's I, just, toy. I just wanted to clarify because it sounded like you said douche and I was like, that's metal as hell, but also I just wanted to be sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I just can't pronounce things. So that's fine. Yeah. Anyways, then this is one of our more prominent sources for the origins of Perta. In it, he claimed that she likely evolved from German folk figures Hole or Holda based on the shared bright and dark characteristics. Despite describing both sides of Perikta in his works, it's still the dark version that is most prominent today. Graham draws upon his vast comparative scope to relate the diverse aspects of figures, including Hecate and Artemis, thus linking her to the hunting hounds of the Wild Hunt. He compares her to the Queen of the Elves, Titania. Author James Fraser noted that the jumping and leaping that Perikta performed was seen as a magical way of increasing fertility and creating a successful harvest. The bells that Perikta is said to wear are thought to be for banishing demons who might otherwise blight crops. In the early 1900s, many scholars saw Perikta as the remnants of an old world goddess of fertility and even death cults that had managed to amalgamate. Later interpretations saw her as a leader of souls due to her association with the wild hunt and her retinue of child souls. There was a lot of ideas of what Perikta was about, and citations and distillations of numerous sources, but then... Then the Third Reich happened. Jesus. Yeah, so this, uh, this changed German folklore from the 1930s all the way up to the 70s. And this, area is, this era is known as the Second Wave. So, again, Nazis ruined everything. Um, the Nazis took all this folklore and retrofitted it in service of their own political and social engineering agendas. The 19th century focus on ancient cultic origins and the romantic objectification of rural people was appropriated and twisted by the Third Reich. The guiding values behind this first wave, uh, by the, behind the first wave fascination with folklore remained, except that now nationalism was made an explicit social good, and the search for continuity fed into folk nationalistic project of reconstructing a quote pure German society. Yeah, don't like it. No. But after the war, much work had to be done to undo all the Nazi propaganda that had permeated every level of society and culture, including folklore. And it wouldn't be until the 1970s when much of what had been lost had begun to become reassembled, leading into then the third wave of German folklore. In 1991, Marion Rumpf would publish her 280-page book on Perkta and Perkten. This is still considered one of the best resources for the history of Perkta. It was Rumpf, though, through her much research that came to the conclusion that Perkta came from Catholic roots, not pagan as was thought for so long. To this day, we're still uncovering stories and documentation that tells us more about Perkta and her origins, but much of her folklore may be lost to time forever. And, like, this whole, the fact that, like, the whole Nazi part there, like, that's why we know so little about the practice and why there's so much um, crossover with Krampus. Because they had to lie and be assholes about it. Yeah, and then they had to, like, find all these pieces and figure out how they fit together, right? <laughs> yeah. The lore of Perkta and Perkten tells us a lot about Eastern European history and culture, and sure, the modern Perkten may not be a completely authentic practice, it does come from very deep and very important roots. While Perkta herself is not nearly as prominent as she once was, I think she's a pretty damn cool broad, and I think more people should know about her. But Krampus! <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll take a badass bitch any day. Hell yeah. But yeah, that's, that's Perkta. Nice. nice. Jinx. Oh, because we both said nice at the same time. Oh, Jinx. Oh, Jinx. Yep. <laughs> Jinx. I thought you were saying something about Jake, and I was like, oh, no. Okay. Oh, Continue no. Jinx. The phrase. Jinx. Yep. No. Oh. I guess I can't speak for the rest of the thing. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> he says as he speaks. So um, I learned, so when I learned about Jinx, it was always, you just said Jinx and then pinch poke, you owe me a Coke. And then that person just owed you a soda. And Jake is the one who told me, like, like literally this year that you aren't supposed to talk until the per someone says your name. Yep. yep. Completely different from what I learned. I just thought it was fun. Yep. So now I ruin Jinxes all the time. I, uh, yeah, no, I remember like my brother and I did that to each other a lot growing up, and then there would the whole be the whole running around trying to get someone to say your name. Because <laughs> you know, as a child, you you obey those laws. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's because when yeah. you're a kid, you know how the Fey work. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's it for this year. Yes, I said year. We will be back in January with part two of this episode. And in the meantime, we wish you the happiest of holidays, whatever that means to you. That's playing video games, snuggling your pets, tolerating your family, ordering Chinese food, or getting that sweet stat pay. Thanks again for another amazing year, and we look forward to doing it all again next year. 